Shalom and welcome again to another edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. We welcome you to uh, what we anticipate is going to be a very interesting and exciting podcast today. And we are pleased to welcome to uh, Seekers of Meaning, David Bernstein, the founder and CEO of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. David Welcome to Seekers of Meaning. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, thank you to my colleague Rabbi Salkin for making the, the shidduch. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's good to see you even through, especially on the Zoom machine here or whatever we are on. Um, good to be here. The Jewish Institute for Liberal Values is a pretty new organization. What is it and why is it important now? Sure. So I've been a Jewish professional my entire life. In my last job, I was CEO of an Jewish umbrella organization that brings together the Jewish community relations field to fight various challenges. And I have to say, in the last year or so, after the George Floyd killing, I felt that there was a shrinking of the not only American conversation, but the Jewish conversation, and that it was becoming more and more ideally ideologically charged and more and more difficult to have authentic and true conversations about race and racism in this country. Um, certain voices were being stifled, certain voices were being elevated, and that wasn't good for democracy, and it was not good for Jewish institutions. I started to see that Jewish organizations that were known for their deliberative processes around various issues were now stifling dissent and in, in insisting that there was only one way to understand these issues. And I also started to notice that this ideology, which you could call woke ideology, you could call critical social justice ideology, was spawning a new variant of anti-Semitism as well that we became concerned with. And so I left that position um, a little over a year ago to start the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Um, there, are, I, I, Fortunately, I, I'm not the only one who saw the problem as I did. There were some key funders in place who helped us get going, and we've really been able to uh, build quickly. We have three full-time staff people now um, working on these issues and building educational programs and the like. And I could talk to you a little bit more about what that involves, but um, what we're, we're trying to do is go back to the kind of authentic open conversations that the Jewish community is known for. It's a hallmark of the Jewish community. Machloket l'shem shemayim, argument for the sake of heaven. I believe that that's been shunted aside in the current ideological environment, and we need to restore some of these liberal principles to Jewish life, and then play a role as Jews in the larger American discussion on these issues. Jewish values such as what? Um, openness to debate. The idea of Hillel and Shammai, the idea that you could have two distinct houses that have feuds over law, but they they think highly enough uh, to not only have constructive debate, but also to even cite the other houses, the Hillel, House of Hillel at least, cite Shammai's, uh, you know, ruling in the way that it it ruled. That's the kind of discussion that I think we need to go back to. Debate is a hallmark of Jewish life. Um, uh, and fostering debate is very important. Stifling debate, I would argue, is inimical to Jewish values. 
And I think that's where we're, we're moving toward in many of our institutions. You can't talk about controversial issues around, about race and racism in a way that, that violates any of the orthodoxies or pieties today. You can't have discussions over sensitive issues like gender ideology and identity that I think are, are important discussions to have and where there might be difference of opinion. And you, you, we, we learn from each other when we debate each other, when we allowed uh, different ideas to flourish. And then we actually tend to find the right uh, the right convert, the right answer over time, but only if you allow those alternative viewpoints. So that's to me is a key Jewish value. So David, you mentioned that what for you the trigger, the tipping point was the George Floyd thing, which is which is recent. This just didn't emerge in the last year and a half, two years. In your in your in your opinion, your as you said, working in the Jewish community for years. Where is the genesis of this? Because it's true. I mean, there is no civility left um, at all, and we have colleagues and we have colleagues on pulpits across the denominational line who are afraid, and I use that word advisedly, to really speak to the tachlis of ethical Jewish prophetic values for fear that the executive committee of the congregation will meet immediately afterwards and say you had no right to sp- speak. You've offended this members of the congregation, and we're right. seeing. That. Where, where did this start, in your opinion? Right. So, look, these are always been tensions in the pulpit when, uh, you know, Jews disagree with each other. And some people, when they disagree, aren't, aren't okay with that disagreement. They, they want to force rabbis and others to conform to sort of uh, their viewpoint. And whenever one speaks about an issue that's important in public life, they're, they're liable to um, offend somebody. That's been around a long time. What's a bit newer, although it's been brewing in the discourse, and it comes out of the academy, is an ideology which says two things. One is that oppression and bias are built in the very fabric of society. In other words, it's racism is not just a matter of somebody's individual attitudes, but it's 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 a societal wide phenomena and it's it's in the in the air, in the oxygen. The other basic premise of this ideology is that only people who have been negatively affected by it, only its victims, only people with lived experience have the standing to define the world for everybody else. This is sometimes together referred to as critical social justice ideology, or colloquially it's referred to as wokeness. And that ideology has gained favor within sort of the civil rights establishment in the United States, and it's now found its way into various institutions. And it's, it's, and it's not that it's completely wrong. I'm not complete, I'm not saying that bias isn't sometimes embedded in system society. I believe it is. I'm not saying that people with lived experience don't have anything to offer the rest of us. Of course they do. As a Jew who's experienced anti-Semitism, I'd like to think that if you're a non-Jew, you'd want to hear what I have to say about anti-Semitism and someone who's experienced it. But it doesn't give me the right to say that's the final word on what anti-Semitism is to the rest of the world. And I think, um, and I, so, so the premises of liberalism is that you can, that the conversation remains open, that we want to hear people in good faith talk about why there might be racism or why there might be differences of outcome among different groups. And we won't want to silent any any one voice that means well. We want to open that conversation and allow those expressions of disagreement. That has now gone from being sort of a fringe view in society directly in the mainstream, not just of Jewish organizations, but also in Jewish organizations and in congregational life. So if you're somebody who doesn't necessarily buy into that 
set of views and values, you may find yourself at odds with an important constituency. Now, I mean, it's not the first time this has happened. You can argue the same thing was happening around Israel, that if you were somebody who believed Israel wasn't perfect and you wanted to have a, express an alternative view, you might be called on the carpet by somebody on the sort of hawkish Jewish right. And now I'm saying that, okay, that's true. And that we have to, we have to, we have to change that dynamic in order to allow people to express differences of opinion around Israel. But we also have to make sure that people feel comfortable, uh, you know, expressing differences of opinion around social issues and race and racism and the like and where it exists and where it doesn't exist and what it explains and what it doesn't explain. What are people afraid of? Um, so. I think that there are people who want you to believe, want us to believe, that the only acceptable way to talk about disparities in society is that there's a, that that the oppressors are oppressing the oppressed, and that's the only way of talking about those issues. And so they're trying to impose a single discourse on society. A lot of other people who might question that are afraid of being called out. And that's what I mean by cancel culture. It's not that you're just going to be fired or canceled if you say something, although that can happen, but rather that you're walking on eggshells around these conversations all the time because you might not agree with that basic premise. And, um, and, and so I think that's what people are afraid of. There's certain people who are afraid of opening the conversation and other people are afraid of being called out if they express an alternative point of view. It, historically, and at least in, in my rabbinate especially, uh, um, major Jewish institutions such as the denominational institutions were at the forefront of making great social justice statements. Um, many colleagues of my generation now take a look at some of these institutions and some of the denominational structures as being very cautious on certain areas. Um, of social justice concern about not making statements or pulling back. Is that your experience? And if so, why? What, what, what's going on with the traditional Jewish institutional framework? Yeah. So look, I mean, I think Jews, Jewish organizations have always spoken out on, on issues of social justice. The question is, what is social justice? See, I, like, I think that, um, that there's an argument to be had that good social justice requires, like everything else, argument. The people have to, maybe a political conservative, and I'm not one, I'm, I'm a liberal, I'm a center left person, but maybe a political conservative believes that social justice is, um, providing enterprise zones, um, you know, as Jack Kemp, the, um, former HUD secretary once argued. You know, maybe there are different versions of making society or different plans of making society a better place. And I'm, I'm trying to make the argument that we have to hear those out. And that today there's there's a shrinking of that conversation about what constitutes social justice. Um, I can tell you that the um, reform denomination, I think, has, is also going in that direction of, of too often this um, stifling dissent um, and not allowing or not encouraging those kind of uh, conversations. Um, I, I can tell you that there's a diversity seminar that's being offered to rabbis of various denominations that was sent to me by a rabbi. And, and in it said, it said this space, this is a diversity training for, for re reform rabbis and clergy. This space is for white clergy and will serve as a white anti-racist affinity space. 
A white anti-racist affinity space is one where white people can process their emotions and deepen their understanding around race and racism without burdening or causing additional harm to people of color. That is the premise of this diversity training that, um, that, that reform clergy are being asked to participate in. I think that that is a, that that is not open to alternative ways of looking at the world. I think that that is saying that there's only one way to understand these issues and that we're going, you, and, and your job is to process your feelings so that you can reconcile with our perspective. Now, look, I, I grew up in a Reformed temple. I have great fondness for Reformed Judaism. I think the prophetic voice is extremely important, but I also think it always has to be balanced against Machlok at Lashem Shemaim, argument for the sake of heaven. I think that's being lost. So on that, I, I think that's through the CCAR, um, which is the Reform Rabbinic Organization. It's not. Which I'm it's, a, it's, it's part of, it's, it's from through the URG. RAC. It's from the RAC oh, and URG, yeah. Okay, okay. The Religious Action Center, which is the Reform Lobby in Washington and the Union for Reform Judaism, for whom I worked for 30-some years mm-hmm. um, in another lifetime. Um, but if you were creating that, how would you change that approach? What, that, what work would you change? What I would do is I would I would educate people, and we're, we're trying to devise it, a curriculum along these lines, actually. We're right now calling it Machloket. I'm not sure that's going to be the final name of it. But what, what I would do is I would tee up the various viewpoints around diversity in society. I would want to, I would ask congregants or clergy, whoever you happen to be training, what what does Ibrahim X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, what does he have to say about race and racism? And I would also ask, what is John McWhorter, the black professor from Columbia University who thinks Kendi's off his, out of his mind? What does he have to say? And why does he think Kendi is out of his mind? I would want to know what various perspectives there are on these issues and allow people to discuss them in a constructive way. Because I don't think that these issues are resolved in the body politic. And I think we're pretending that they are. And then we're trying to impose that single view on everybody else. And I think that's, that's not the way to do it. And I don't think that that's consistent with traditional Jewish values. So. Um, let's get some of the to the talkless of of the incident again. We're talking to David Bernstein, who is the CEO and founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Um, you're talking about wh- what you're trying to do, your website, and what and real fast. What's the website in case somebody wants to go to Google and Google you? Sure, it's uh, jilv.org. Jilv.org. Okay, so um, we go to your website. What, how, how are you going to educate us? What are the, some of the outreach programs that the Institute is developing? Uh, and if I wanted to take advantage of them, how do I do that? Sure. So one of the things that we're actually developing is sort of a, a rabbinical council. We had a, a, a letter that was signed by 250 mostly reforming conservative rabbis. Um, that was uh, put together by Rabbi David Wolpe, a prominent conservative rabbi out of out of Los Angeles, and uh, several other rabbis, several reform rabbis were involved with it as well, including our mutual friend Rabbi Jeff Salkin. Um, these rabbis cited the concern and the, um, about this ideology and the and and the stifling of the conversation in Jewish life and suggested that we open up that conversation. They also cited the concern, by the way, that this ideology may spawn a new variant of anti-Semitism, which is something that we try to educate the Jewish community on as well. So there, so we welcome any rabbis or cantors into that rabbinical council. 
We are also um, doing live stream events, and we're uh, we have a new curriculum, as I said, um, that is uh, being developed. It will be out soon. So any congregations that want to um, that want to do exactly what I suggested to have really heartfelt discussions that are willing to entertain all sides of the issues uh, around these issues like anti-racism and racism, we'll have a framework for, for them to have those conversations. We're happy to sponsor individual conversations with individual congregations as well. Um, we're also trying to develop an alternative approach to social justice, which we're, I'm calling it a, a bigger tukun olam right now, that allows different voices to express how they view tukun olam in social justice so that we we don't create a very small tukun olam tent that only allows certain ideological perspectives to be expressed. Um, we are doing some advocacy work where we try to advocate for Jewish institutions to take a more pluralistic, open stance on these issues. Um, and we're also building bridges to other ethnic communities, like particularly Asian American groups and black heterodox thinkers, groups that are equally concerned as us that uh, the conversation in this country has gone off the rails and we're making common cause with them. So the um, the advocacy thing, let's take an example of what's, what's going on in um in sadly too many states right now, uh, attempts to uh, control election, uh, attempts to limit uh, women's right to choose, uh, attempts to um, ban books. Um, this this represents a, a clear and present danger to liberal values. It does. Um, so how does the institute begin to respond to that or is this you know outside the purview of what you what you want to create yeah so there those are a lot of issues i mean look i'm very pro choice i've been involved in pro choice politics most of my career um i'm i'm certainly uh, a major supporter of voting rights have been involved in those issues criminal justice reform likewise but um but but we're more we're more involved in sort of some of the cultural conversation i think book banning would come closer to what we're concerned with and there we're concerned about it happening on both the right and the left um of right. course you have Forces on the right, I'm not even sure that these are good descriptors anymore, right and left, but you have forces on on the right who want to ban books like Mouse, for example, in Tennessee, you saw that, which is a book about the Holocaust, and I think that's absurd. Um, but there's also books, there's also people on the left that are trying to ban, you know, kill, to kill a mockingbird. Because it, um, because it presents, you know, what they would consider the white savior complex. Um, you know, and I think we have to be concerned about both and we, we should oppose book banning on both sides of the ideological aisle. And we should try to carve out as much space as possible for, for book reading and for conversations around books, including and especially controversial books. You mentioned a couple of times. Uh, that you're concerned with, quote, a new variant of anti-Semitism, unquote. Walk me through that. Unpack what you see as a new variant of anti-Semitism as a result of uh, the woke culture. Sure. So um, my, my son's public school j j is, is in the process of developing an anti-racist audit. And in the anti-racist audit report, they say that they would like the new social studies curriculum to teach students to recognize and resist systems of oppression. Now, I want my kids to discuss those issues, but I don't want them to be told exactly what constitutes a system of oppression, what isn't. And I fear that that paradigm, that oppressor versus oppressed 
paradigm will be used to describe Israel as an oppressive state and will be used to see Jews as a privileged class. And it is happening already. Um, I believe that this idea of equity, which used to mean sort of equality of people, is now being used to say that any differences in group outcomes automatically means that one group is discriminated against. And I think the world is more complicated than that. And I think it, um, sometimes in order to get um, to lift up minority groups, you have to invest in them from the uh, and, and the you know traditionally marginalized communities over long periods of time. Um, and and this equity concept tries to create perfect parity in the here and now. And I and I think that that's dangerous for Jews because it says that if you're a community that is traditionally succeeded um, on average, that means that you're oppressing people who have underperformed or or have not yet um gotten to that achievement or or income. And I think that's that's problematic. It's problematic for Jews and it's problematic for um Asian Americans and other groups that sort of exceed the mean. So I think these are various ways that um that this ideology is fomenting a new variant of anti-Semitism. Um, and it's no accident that when we saw the Gaza war in May of 2000 and um, in 21, it felt very different from previous rounds because this ideology had empowered people to look at the world and enabled people and empowered that paradigm to look at the world as oppressed versus oppressor. No nuance. Only one side could be wrong and one side could be right. And I think that's what th this ideology is creating. And that's not good for Jews. It's not good for Jews. We're, um, and, and that's why I think we, we need to create more nuanced conversations, not binary conversations. We also need to create a new vocabulary because you've alluded to this a couple of times that, you know, left, right, right. what do they mean anymore? And, and we struggle, we struggle with, we do. with language, we, don't we? And language, language is a wedge to divide it people is. a you lot know, of time. I, I've been called sort of, you know, by certain people, alt-right or whatever. I support uh, free choice, criminal justice reform, immigrant rights. I mean, if you go down the list of traditional... Uh, social issues, I'm probably 80 to 90 percent democratic. Yet I'm critiquing this discourse on the left because I'm fearful it's going to alienate a lot of people on the left who will then say, well, I can't relate to that. And I think it's already happening. I think it's terrible politics. But I also, um, and I want to protect our, the, the, my traditional backyard, the left, from what's happened on the segments of the right. Which is, you know, sort of conspiracy theories and ideologies and populism and so forth. I think that process is also underway on the left. And I think it's best opposed by people who are of the left themselves who say, listen, this is not what I want my ideological backyard to look like. I'm not comfortable here. Let's try to make sure we carve out space for ourselves. So left and right may not work well. I think there are people who probably would have considered themselves on the left to move to the right and vice versa. And and we have to think carefully about what terms we use and how to describe this. I want to just ask you just to play around with this idea because a couple of my colleagues and I uh, have been talking about this a lot in the last six months. Given everything that's happening, especially with the focus of the Institute within the context of the American system, and given what we may be facing in the next couple of years, in your opinion, is the is the system that we have right now in the United States of America, is it broken? Yeah. Or just, I, you, you know, know? Yeah, I, I think it's wounded. Um, I think the social media culture has fundamentally shifted our politics. It's not the only 
thing afoot. Um, we had gerrymandering, for example, um, in our political system that allowed districts to become extremely Republican or extremely Democratic. And that elected a whole slew of people that are beholden to their extreme, the extremes in the party. That has not been healthy for our democracy. And then you combine that to like, combine that with a social media culture echo chamber that allows people to sort of curate their own news and to only hear from the right or the left. There's no common narrative as well. And to be sub susceptible to sort of extreme ideologies. Um, I think that's problematic as well. Um, is that the system broken? Perhaps to a degree. Um, but, uh, and maybe there are policy solutions to some of these problems. But I think a lot of it is sort of, you know, we have to, we have to scale up critical thinking in society. You know, it, when, when Walter Con Cronkite or Dan Rather narrated the national narrative on 6 p.m. every day, um, we, we had a common narrative. We might have disagreed about a, a lot of things, but you could go back and listen to them and the way that they talked about America and its founding and who we were. There was sort of a common understanding of what this country stood for. That's been lost by the, in this current polarized environment. And I think we have to find ways of reclaiming sort of a common narrative. And we, and part of that is also making sure that we have people who are capable of, of, recognizing fake news and, and recognizing skewed ideologies that come from either side of the political spectrum and um, and are critical thinkers. And so this is a long-term project um, that um, requires some policy intervention, but also a lot of social change to, to make sure that people can withstand the ideological assault coming in both directions. One of the areas that... Um We've talked about on this, on, on the podcast and also in my work, but I'm anxious to get your take on it so far as the, um, of what the Institute stands for and what you hope to do. Have you had any attempt to do so many inreach or outreach to seminaries, to rabbinic seminaries, uh, in the next generation of rabbis, cantors, educators? Uh, we haven't. I think it's in the long run critical. It's something I would love to do. I do worry that a younger generation of reform, conservative, reconstructionist rabbis are becoming too ideologically charged. I do worry that, and I've heard, by the way, from professors at HUC and other places um, that have said to me that th they're almost scared of their own students, that their students are calling them out on some, you know, ideological violation and they, they walk on eggshells. You know, I, I don't think that's uh, the kind of rabbinate that's going to help people navigate the ideological and religious and cultural currents of our time. Um, and so, um, and I worry that that reform and conservative Judaism have skewed toward the prophetic and away from the priestly role of the rabbi. In other words, the rabbi can play both of those roles. They can be a prophet and they can warn us of the, uh, you know, of, of our moral turpitude, but they can also be the priest, the person that brings us together and helps us uh, mediate conflict and think about what the psychological ramifications of our actions are. Um, and I think we need more of that second category um, and a little less uh, profit. More priests, less profit. And I think that we could do that by engaging rabbinical schools over time. And that's going to come because some rabbinical leaders and heads of rabbinical schools say, you know what, we have a problem here, and it's time that we bring in other voices here to help us think it through. Yeah, I would I would hope that over the course of the next year or so, that at least you would be invited to just talk to the 
Sure. So you were one of the staff uh, to, to, to get into, and there's not only the traditional like HUC or JTS, but Reconstructionists, the Olive Seminary, the Boston yeah. Hebrew, the Academy. There, there's so many options now, but these people are going out into the field and not only rabbinic students, yes. but educational students, cantorial students, Jewish communal service students. Um, they do. They touch people. They touch people. And so I don't want to tell you what to do, but I, I would hope that in the long run, as you said, that this would be some, maybe, maybe somebody in, on the staff to just focus on not only congregational outreach, but also seminarian outreach uh, could be a very, very interesting, even as I'm thinking about this, opportunities for seminary interns to come and spend some time with the Institute and yeah. take it's that message back idea. to the school. It's a brilliant idea. And, um, you know, for us, an organization that's not even hit its first year, we're at about 10 months right now. It's a matter right. of sequencing. And, you know, our first order of business was, do, can we find a critical mass of rabbis who share with us our view that there's a problem. And we did. We, we, we were able to find 250 rabbis who signed this, this letter that I think was very powerful. And now the next question is, okay, what do we do with those rabbis? And, and some of those rabbis, by the way, do come from seminaries. And can we interest them in broader dialogues? You know, every day we are, we, we are welcomed into more spaces in the Jewish community. Every day I'm having more conversations with the mainstream Jewish community uh, who says, you know, we agree that there are issues here, there are tensions, and are welcoming us in the conversation. Uh, Ten months ago, I had fewer takers than what I do today. So I feel like we're making progress. And it would not surprise me at all if in six months from now, we're not in active dialogue with uh, with the rabbinical seminaries. Well, I, I you know, obviously you've touched a nerve. Um a positive way uh, because I think there is, I don't think that's a lie. I know that there is this need to have some sense of balance, civility uh, brought into the concept of the dialogue, just of what's going on right now. And there is a concern about, as you would call it, a new variant of anti-Semitism. And we're already seeing it. You know, there was a case a couple of months ago, in a religious school in the Northeast where somebody, you know, dared to say something against the party line of Israel. But we have to be able to, as 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 the Institute is doing, is saying, look, you may not agree with yes. this, but, but let's talk about it. Let's understand why as 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 intelligent, sensitive, caring yes. human beings. David Bernstein, the CEO and founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Before we leave, David, once again, if somebody wants to contact you at the Institute, so they what, can, how do they do uh, that? They can write me at J uh, David at JILV.org. I'd be absolutely happy to uh, respond. And uh, they can um, call me on my uh, line 301-452-8136. That's 301-452-8136. And I'm, I'd welcome conversation. We're having a lot of conversations now. And I'd welcome an introductory conversation um, to uh, what we're doing and how to think about this work together. David Bernstein. Thank you very, very much, David. Uh, I wish you good luck. Uh, this is um, Thanks this a, a lot, real need uh, to attempt to bring some some civility and reason perhaps back into this uh, craziness so take care most of all stay healthy and Thank stay you. safe right now
And to all of you, thank you again for being with us on today's edition of Secrets of Meaning, the TV show and podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Again, if you'd like to reach me, rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. And to continue our work, we appreciate any donation, a tax-free donation, if you'd like to make one so that we can continue our stuff here. Uh, go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com, scroll down to the do- icon that says donate, click on it, and just follow the easy-to-follow directions. Seekers of Meaning is produced in the broadcast center of Lubetkin Media Companies in bucolic and gorgeous, easy-to-live Cherry Hill, New Jersey, conveniently located to whatever. And we thank our producer, uh, Steve Lubetkin. And before we um, end, since this is being posted on Friday, May 6th, let me wish a fantastic Mazel Tov to the world's greatest granddaughter, Ayla Grumbacher, on her bat mitzvah this Shabbat. I love you. I love you. I love you. Parasha Kedoshim Mitsuyan. To all of you, thank you very much for joining us. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, everyone.